Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. On November 12th, catch Red Hook Summer, the latest film from director Spike Lee. And on November 13th, don't miss Savages, the new film from Oliver Stone starring Taylor Kitsch, Blake Lively, and Benicio Del Toro, in an unrated cut that wasn't available in theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this week's show, Matt and I play some ironic softball, hang out in air quotes at a local bar until we almost get sarcastically beaten up, and then talk about the new film, The Comedy, all the while having no idea whether the other person is being serious or not. Before we do that, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. And inspired by the comedy, which is set around the Brooklyn neighborhood of Williamsburg, and by the fact that we're recording this in a city still in recovery from Hurricane Sandy, a storm we were both lucky enough to get through unscathed, we are going to talk about films set in New York. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of other notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what's our first pick this week? Our first pick is a film I think I briefly mentioned on our last show. It's called Natural Selection from the year 2011, directed by Robbie Pickerling and starring Rachel Harris and Matt O'Leary. Rachel Harris, you would recognize her probably best as Ed Helms' evil fiancé from The Hangover. She did a lot of those I Love the 70s TV shows, I Love the 80s, I Love the 90s. Funny. She's a really funny lady. She's very funny, yeah. She's also the mom in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series, which, Allison, I know you're a huge fan of. Huge fan. Huge fan. Actually, those movies aren't that bad. But anyway, this movie gives her kind of a chance to show that beyond being just a really funny comedian, she's a pretty talented actress. She's very much uh, cast against type here as a housewife in a fundamental Christian community in Texas. And because she had lost the ability to have children years before – her husband has refused to have sex with her for years because sex is only for procreation. So if there's no chance of that, there's no sex. So she's having this very unfulfilled, frustrated life, not realizing that, meanwhile, her husband is going to the sperm bank regularly to... It's a loophole. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He's found a loophole that does not apply to her. So uh, that's the essential beginning of the film. I don't really want to spoil what happens next Because I think part of what makes the movie so wonderful is it's very surprising the places that this woman's journey goes to. But let's just say that one of the trips to the sperm bank by her husband is quite eventful. And that creates a a change of life for uh, Linda, that's uh, Rachel Harris's character, in a few ways. What do you mean a few days late? If you're in some kind of a situation where you can't tell me, just give me a signal. Really? I'm okay. Was that a signal? You ever quit? Uh-uh. No, lady. Not a chance. You've never been drunk before? Yes! She is committing crimes. It's like the Patty Hearst syndrome. The movie won the Audience Award and, along with several jury prizes at the 2011 South by Southwest Film Festival. I actually saw it at Ebert Fest a few months after that, Roger Ebert's Film Festival in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And uh, Rachel Harris and Robbie Pickerling were there. They were very nice. I got to meet them. I got to talk with them and hang out with them. And I think it's a really, really nice, uh, very well-made independent film. Great portrait. uh, Very nice performance by Rachel Harris. Funny, touching. Kind of like what you like from an independent movie. You know, it's a a character study, but it's got a lot of humor, a lot of heart. Uh, Clearly would never have been made by any studio because it goes to some very unusual places and takes some interesting chances. It's just a really smart movie. I recommend it. It's called Natural Selection. It's going to be available on VOD starting on November 13th. 
And Allison, do we have a few other VOD picks? We do. Also on VOD this month is I Wish from the great Japanese director Hirokazu Koreeda, who has made Still Walking, Nobody Knows, and Afterlife. And this is a film about two young brothers who are living in different cities after their parents got divorced. One has gone to live with their father, who's a musician. The other has gone to live with their mother, who has moved home. And uh, they're building a new bullet train between the regions where the brothers live. And one of them has heard in school through kind of like child urban legend that if you're there the first time that the bullet trains pass each other, that the energy is such that you can make a wish and it'll come true. So this is, it sounds unbearably schmaltzy. It's actually very sweet, I think, because Corey Ada is one of the greatest directors of child actors I can think of. He's so good at allowing them to seem like children and to kind of really play like children. And, you know, the brothers make plans to meet, but it's also about how they kind of slowly adjust to their new surroundings and make friends at school. And it's uh, it's a pretty lovely film. Uh, it's not, I think, maybe as great as my favorite of his films, which is Still Walking, but it, it's definitely one that's worth a look. And that is on demand on November 6th. On Demand November 13th is The Queen of Versailles, which is a documentary that's uh, been talked about a lot. I'm looking forward to seeing this one. Have you caught it yet? I have. Oh, okay. It's very interesting. All right, uh, it's good. About, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's about David Siegel, who is uh, a wealthy, he's a timeshare king, uh, and his wife, uh, a former beauty queen, and their eight children, as they prepare to move into the house that they're building in Florida, one that, if it were ever finished, would be the largest single-family house in America. America. It's this like 30 bedroom, 10 kitchen monstrosity that's modeled partially after Versailles, nice. but also Hence after the title. Yeah, also after the Paris Hotel in Vegas. <laughs> so Well, I mean, nothing's gone wrong with the housing market recently, so it all must have turned out really well for them. Really, really well. I think actually the fact that the film was started before the 2008 economic crash and then takes in the turn of fortunes for the family uh, that happens after that makes it a much better film because it starts off almost inviting you to just judge these people who have some really garish taste. Uh, you know, you first look around their house and there are some amazing, including like commissioned historical style portraits on the wall and things like that. But it becomes a really smart and kind of poignant look at the American dream as this almost illness, you know, in terms of like need, the need for like acquisition and building yourself up from from, you know, humble beginnings, mm -hmm. uh, it becomes a really interesting look at what it means to be happy. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting doc, and it is available on demand on November 13th. Allison, we're very happy to have Audible back as a sponsor of SVU this week. And Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. And Allison, you're going to recommend something to them right now, aren't you? I am. It's actually a book that I mentioned on our last podcast that's been on my mind ever since we talked about video games and the idea of video games as an art that's just starting to kind of come into its own mm -hmm. as a serious medium, you know, one that can be discussed critically. And I think that... It's, it's, it's worth a read or listen, in this case, if you are interested in video games or in just the idea of criticism of a new medium. It's Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter. It is written by Tom Bissell and narrated by the author. And it is a collection of essays that deal with different games as well as the very idea of when do you start treating a medium like art as something capable of art. And he actually deals a bit with the idea of like loving games and the capacity for them while also acknowledging that the dialogue is not there yet. Acknowledging that oftentimes uh, he feels a little embarrassed about getting deeply involved in a game about elves or uh, something that's just not quite there, especially in terms of writing. But he, he manages to explore gameplay and uh, the art of game making and it deals with some indie games as well in a, a way that I think is very smart. So if you are a fan of video games or if you are just curious about video games and kind of want an approach that's not just d like it's jumping awesome. in. Exactly. Or just, you know, jumping in if you don't have a console yet. I think that this provides a very smart way to look at gaming.
And what's the title one more time? It's Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter. Okay, and for a free audiobook of your choice, including Extra Lives, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. Now, we wanted to talk about films set in New York, partially because the comedy is set in New York, and in a kind of uh, relatively unexplored area of New York cinematically, but also because... We have just come through a kind of epic New York event, and uh, we're the actually, timing seemed fortuitous. Yeah, we're actually recording this in my apartment. We usually don't do that. We usually record in Matt's apartment. You mean a high tech, top notch, state of the art studio, right? Which so we couldn't get to. We couldn't get to. So, in fact, now we are making do underneath a tent basically we made a tent to muffle the sound and try to give you as best an approximation of the uh, sound quality that we usually give you yes. hopefully it's working it seems yeah. to be working so far if you've ever wondered what it's like when we record the podcast just imagine two adults underneath a sheet <laughs> held up by a standing desk yes held up by a standing desk because you know health first the glamorous life of podcasters it's folks amazing. This, is, this is what it is yeah. but yeah so it just it seemed like an appropriate subject given this week luckily both of us were you know we're we're not complaining we we're okay and yeah. our, our houses are okay and, and everyone is okay but uh yeah it was quite an experience it i mean it was yeah it was very uh day after tomorrow-esque yes yes <laughs> roland emmerich called and demanded some royalties i think did yeah. you lose power at any point i didn't i was very lucky we were both very lucky we didn't yeah. even lose power yeah me neither I, you know and it was one of the strange things that manhattan lost power you know that you often think that new york like that manhattan of all places is like one of the most central you know right <laughs> urban places in the yeah. world uh and i you know many friends and i'm sure you have friends as well that are in the area that were without power for days yep. uh, and you know not a pretty picture yeah. right not great well it's a good time then to celebrate new york with some new york movies there are so many. I mean, it's it's a tough category to, to narrow down. It's funny. I was walking with my wife last night, and I just said, well, what comes to your mind when I say the phrase, New York movies? What do you think of? And all the movies she thought of were romantic comedies, which I thought was pretty interesting. And these are and, – and good ones. Yeah. Sleepless in Seattle. Right. When Harry Met Sally. You've got mail. You know, like that, that, that to her – she's like, when I picture New York on screen, I picture it snowing lightly and people being in love. I thought that was really interesting uh, because th that definitely is a strain. But there are, you know, I, I've come up with a list of somewhat more darker films, you know, like right. my on-screen New York is very different. But it's funny how you could have two totally different uh, images that come to your mind when you say like New York on screen or three or four or five. There are so many different ones. And there's some of the greatest movies ever made that are good New York movies. Is there anything that defines your picks or did you just go for a range of options? I just went for a range of options. And I was trying to keep in mind maybe aspects of New York that I didn't immediately associate that weren't the first things that came to mind for mm -hmm. me when I think of them, you know, so I didn't do any Woody Allen. Uh, yeah. Martin I, Scorsese, he's out. I didn't do Martin Scorsese. I did do one pick from a filmmaker who uh, is, a, is a pretty associated with being a New York filmmaker, but okay. I did try and kind of go against, uh, away from the usual picks. And right. as you said, there are so many. I mean, I think that you know, one of my favorite New York movies, I always love the Royal Tenenbaums because it mm -hmm. seemed to me to be a movie made by someone who had maybe never been to New York, but had always read like New Yorkers and kind of come up with a fantasy New York mm -hmm. based on that. And I loved that idea or, uh, you know, some other ones that I didn't, I don't have as picks, but like two lovers and it's showing Brighton beach, which is like a, such a distinctive and very different part that of you don't York. see on screen too much. Yeah. yeah. Or the movie Frownland, which unfortunately was not uh, available streaming, but like has this really great nightmarish depiction of mm -hmm. New York that I, is really like nothing else I've seen, even in the dark kind of aspects of it. Saving face, which is set in flushing, you know, or, Girls, actually, the TV show Girls from Lena Dunham is set in the neighborhood we are recording this in right now mm. in Greenpoint. Like, I love I, the episode where they make a podcast under a tent. I thought that was a really I profound really one. related to it. Actually. Some reason it touched just, me in yeah, a very deep place. Just, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, before we get to our picks, which I kind of did the same thing. It's like, you don't need me to tell you that Manhattan is a great movie. I tried to pick some less famous ones. We should mention, though, that quite a few of them are on Netflix. I have a list of the movies I'm not going to recommend that are on Netflix right now that are a little more famous. So if you haven't seen them, you can catch up with them, including Manhattan, Woody Allen's Manhattan, and Woody Allen's Broadway Danny Rose and Another Woman. Uh, also, Bringing Out the Dead, uh, Bad Lieutenant from Abel Ferrara. 
uh, Death Wish, the classic uh, uh, <laughs> Charles Bronson vigilante movie, Death Wish, which if you've never seen, another, another interesting New York movie. Midnight Cowboy, another classic. Classic. Absolute classic if you've never seen that. I mean, that is maybe the definitive late 60s New York right there. Uh, Serpico, classic cop movie with mm-hmm. Al Pacino, another New York one. And another cop movie, The Taking of Pelham 123, the original. The original. <laughs> because the remake never happened, Allison. You hear me? It never happened. What remake? Exactly. I don't even know. Exactly. So all of those are available on Netflix, but we've got six more picks for you that we're going to talk about in a little more depth. Allison, do you want to start with your first pick? Yeah, sure. I, I was inspired to make this first pick by the comedy uh, because this is also set in the same area. It's Mutual Appreciation, the 2005 film from director Andrew Bujalski. It's available for rent on iTunes and Amazon. And... Uh, I think that it makes an interesting pairing with the comedy in that if the comedy is about the kind of ironic detached side of like Brooklyn hipsterdom, then the mutual appreciation is about people who are almost cripplingly nice. They are so kind of soft-spoken and afraid to say no that a lot of the situations and the comedy in mutual appreciation comes from their unwillingness to, uh, to to get into any kind of conflict, even very minor. Uh, this is a film that is probably one of the highlights of the mumblecore movement, uh, along with Aaron Katz's Quiet City, which is also set in Brooklyn. It stars Justin Rice uh, of the band Bishop Allen as Allen, who has just moved to New York and is crashing with his friend Lawrence, who's played by the director, Bujowski, and, uh, and Lawrence's girlfriend, Ellie, played by Rachel Cliff, who Alan uh, starts finding himself drifting toward despite knowing better. Do you plan on being a rock star for the duration? Like, is this the rest of your life? I well, mean, you know. yes, yes, I would be a rock star for the duration. For the next six months while I'm still alive. <laughs> People flirt. It's not a big deal. It's a free country. <laughs> But it is also just a portrait of post-20-something life and and very particular to New York as a landing place uh, for people uh, after college who have great aspirations, but uh, very, you know, friends futon (laughs) or uh, kind of living arrangements, you know. And I think that it is very generous to these characters while also making it clear how sometimes a little ridiculous they are and it gets it sets up a lot of great scenarios including one in which alan arrives at a party in which he turns out to be the only guest or uh in which they you know just sit around talking it is a talky movie but i think in a in a very smart and painfully uh at least for me like painfully relatable way so that's Mutual Appreciation. It's available for streaming on iTunes and Amazon. Did you check to see if Quiet City is available? It's not available, unfortunately. Mm. But if you have a DVD subscription from Netflix, I think it's available that way and is worth a look. That is a great New York movie. That I like that great. even better than Mutual Appreciation. Okay. Uh, it's funny that your first pick you said was sort of inspired by the comedy because mine was too, even though mine is a 35-year-old movie. Um, I just thought this would make a really nice double feature with the comedy because their protagonists strike me as very similar people. The name of the movie is The Landlord from 1970. It's available on Netflix. It's the directorial debut of Hal Ashby, who you may know as the director of Harold and Maud and Shampoo. He went on to make a lot of great movies. This is his first film, and Bo Bridges is the uh, main character. He's the son, one of the sons of this very wealthy white family. He decides to buy a place of his own by becoming the landlord of a tenement in one of the worst neighborhoods in all of New York City, Park Slope. <laughs> and Allison is chuckling now because that's where I live near Park Slope now. That is one of now one of the nicest and let's just say it. it's one of the whitest neighborhoods <laughs> in all of the five boroughs. bougie, yes. Yes, exactly. And when this movie was set and took place, it was still, you know, it had not been gentrified. And the place he buys, the tenants are not too happy to see their new white landlord. And it's a pretty fascinating uh, juxtaposition. Hold this right there, monkey. Who's that? Now turn around and march your buns back out that door before I shoot them out from under you. Are you crazy? Why are you pointing that at me? Because my horoscope told me that evil was coming to my door today. And March, here it is. 
So get moving or else you ain't gonna have no hips to lean on. You dig? No, lady, I own this house. I'm the new landlord. And I'm a rented. Move it! If you're a landlord, how come you ain't got no door keys? No, I, uh... I have door keys. You know, you look like a rapist to me. You got funny eyes. That's ridiculous. If you figure on carrying out a sexual attack on me, you better learn the karate boogaloo because we're going to tangle ass right here in this hall. I am the new landlord. I think the, the nutshell image is this. The beginning of the movie is very nice. The credits has this really wonderful back and forth juxtapositions between Park Slope as it was then, which is all these old brownstones and everything is very earthy and brown and very dark colors. Even the sky, they filmed it on a rainy day just to really complete the picture. And that is intercut with Bo Bridges' character, whose name is Elgar Enders. <laughs> and he is talking very naively about his ambitions and his dreams. He's wearing all white. He's being he's filmed against an all white backdrop, and he his conversations are cross cut with uh, with two white guys also dressed in white playing on a racquetball court, which is also all white. So you have a very very obvious but powerful juxtaposition there. And during these back and forths, one of the shots of Park Slope is of this uh, barber shop, this African American barber shop in this very distinctive building, which I recognized. It is now a yoga studio. Of course. And I thought that, in a nutshell, you couldn't get any better than that. But anyway, I think I've mentioned Bowbridge's character has these very sort of idealistic and very naive views of what's going to happen when he buys this place, that everyone's going to pay him money. And then eventually he'll be able to kick everyone out, actually, to turn, the, turn it into condos, that he'll be able to live there and have this very luxurious place. And what I love about the movie is that it really kind of takes his – his ideas and really puts them up against some harsh realities, even though it's a comedy, you know, he has all these high minded ideas and he thinks of himself as this like very liberal guy. He comes from a very conservative family and he thinks he's, you know, a real freedom fighter. But once he actually moves into the neighborhood, his, his ideals are really put to the test in a way that's very interesting and very surprising. So it's a really fun movie. It's a smart movie. It tackles ideas of gentrification and race, which are so huge in New York, but not really discussed all that often in a very interesting way. It is available on Netflix. I really recommend it. And we we can talk later when we talk about the comedy, how it kind of dovetails really nicely with the character there and his quote-unquote dilemma. So that's The Landlord, and it's available on Netflix. I haven't seen that, and I really am looking forward to it. It sounds great. It's a pretty interesting movie. Yeah, my next film is uh, also set, actually, around that same neighborhood in a, a later era. It is Smoke, the 1995 film directed by Wayne Wang and uh, the novelist Paul Auster, who kind of was making his first venture into film with this. He wrote the screenplay as well. And it is streaming on Netflix and Hulu+. Plus. This uh, film stars Harvey Keitel's Augie, the owner of a small Brooklyn tobacco shop uh, in 1990. It's uh, on, I think, 3rd Street and 7th Avenue is the address that he gives. And this is a film that's very loose, both in spirit and in its form. It's told in kind of chapters, basically, because it's about different characters in the neighborhood who pass through the tobacco shop and just through the lives of the different characters who kind of come and go. So you have Jared Harris, Forrest Whitaker, Sarker Channing, Herod Perrineau, Ashley Judge, and Carlo Esposito as just a few of the characters. Um, William Hurt as a novelist who hasn't written since he lost his wife and who uh, seems like a possible stand-in in some ways for, for Paul Auster. But uh, it's a film that ha you kind of demands that it, you get on its on its wavelength and it's a very comfortable one it's a film that really just enjoys the idea of people hanging out and talking listen carefully about 25 years ago there was a young man who went skiing alone in the alps there was an avalanche the snow swallowed him up and his body was never recovered. The end. No, no, no. Not the end. The beginning. Paul Oster has said that he kind of wanted to draw comparisons to small talk and how people use it as a, a smokescreen to obscure kind of like larger dramas. But 
I think the film actually manages to blend the two in together very nicely uh, and have some beyond just like an extreme fondness for for Brooklyn and for the idea of a neighborhood as a kind of vivid, uh, lively thing as a community. Uh, it also just has an enjoyment for people hanging out and talking, uh, you know, including the guys who uh, bet at the OTB, something that doesn't exist anymore. In New no, York. just recently went away. Yeah, but that, uh, you know, who kind of look over the racing guides and, uh, and, and talk and or even just the very idea of smoking as like a central aspect of these characters lives. That's true. You know, that and like something that they all enjoy and talk about. Uh, so it's interesting that this is a film made in the mid-90s, set in the early 90s, and already seems very far away, you know, just in terms of culture. So it's, uh, it's you know, I think a really enjoyable film and a very unhur- unhurried one, but one that takes great pleasure in dialogue. Um, so that is Smoke. It's available for streaming on Netflix and Hulu+. Plus. Okay, my next pick, like my first pick, is from the early 1970s. I guess I find that period really interesting because... You know, I've lived here now, although I grew up in New Jersey and I, you know, did spend time in New York as a kid. I've lived here for just about 10 years now. And the New York City of some of these 70s movies just seems so unrecognizable. Even though easily different. Right, because I recognize the places, like in The Landlord, you recognize the places, but the attitude and the atmosphere seems so different. And, you know, a movie like Taxi Driver that I love so much, uh, which we I don't think we even mentioned earlier because I don't think it's available on – it's not on Netflix anyway. You might be able to rent it. You know, it's it's like hard to recognize the place as the same place you live, which I find fascinating. So that's sort of where this movie is also at, a, a little bit different. Um, it could also count as extra credit for Film Spotting Original Recipe's current marathon, which is about black exploitation. A lot of black exploitation movies, understandably set in New York City, as is this one, which isn't quite a black exploitation film. It kind of more gets grouped into it uh, because of what it's about and where it's set. Um, it's a little bit different in terms of the tone, the style, and sort of what it's about than, say, a movie like Shaft, which I still love. I love Shaft, but it's somewhat different. Uh, it's called 110th Street, directed by Barry Shear, and it's from 1972, and I always say that this movie reminds me of sort of The Wire before The Wire. It's it's a look at a crime from all angles. The beginning of the movie is this heist where these uh, guys dressed as policemen rob a a drug deal where basically the the Italian mob and the Harlem mob, these African-American gangsters who work for them, are like sh- splitting up money. They're going through the week's receipts and they're robbed. And then the rest of the movie is about the mob trying to find these guys and get revenge and the cops trying to solve the crime. So you get to see what life is like for all these different people. And the movie kind of draws connections between the people as, as sort of cogs in a machine, the same way that The Wire did so many years later in Baltimore, where it compared the, the cops with the, the drug dealers there. Uh, so, for example, the main cop is played by Anthony Quinn, and he's like a 50-year-old guy, and he's being slowly pushed out of the force because he's he's old and his attitudes are kind of out of touch. And his opposite number in the Italian mob is this guy who's essentially like a glorified bag man, and he's about the same age, a little bit younger, but he's never gotten to rise up in the mob, and that's ca- a cause of frustration for him because he's – you know, he's never going to get anywhere at this rate. So you have these sort of similar characters and similar positions in their jobs. It's just that one happens to uphold the law and one uh, breaks it. Politicians feel that this other guy here should carry the ball. Who? Him, that dingy, the black guy. Why, because he's, uh, he's black? Because he's black, yeah. Look, Jack, here in Harlem... He's going to get the same flag I do. He's still a cop. Uh, that? So what the hell do you care? Look, is he going to stop a race right because he's black? Where was he last year? I stopped it myself. Just me, Jack. Just, just me. Just politics, Frank. It what? doesn't have anything at all. Scoop politics. Look, I'm not going to listen to any of this stuff about these guys. You just got to get it through your head, Frank. It's his baby. Get that through your head. Uh, in terms of it being a great New York movie, it was shot all over uh, New York, particularly in Harlem. There are some amazing locations in Harlem, specifically in the end of the film, which is this big chase scene on the street and on the rooftops in Harlem. And you see these lots that are just, they, they, they look like they don't even look abandoned. They look like bombs went off in them. They're like piles of bricks. They're uh, unbelievable. 
and it is really incredible to see the way New York looked in 1972 in this movie. It's really great. It's a great crime movie. It's a really smart New York movie, a cop thriller, but also a sensitive one too in that it the, that it really considers why people do what they do. Why why somebody would rob mobsters, the most idiotic thing you could ever do. I don't know if I've ever, I'm pretty sure I haven't recommended it on SVU before, but I've talked about it before. It's one of my favorite movies. It's across 110th Street. It's available on Netflix. All right. And my last pick is uh, another crime movie, though it's one that's set downtown. It's Inside Man, the 2006 film from director Spike Lee, who is one of the major New York directors. Definitely. Um, it is streaming on Amazon. You know, uh, Lee's 25th Hour and Inside Man are together, I think, the finest films about 9-11 that I can think of. You know, 25th Hour was made in 2002. In it, 9-11 is this kind of raw wound. Uh, But Inside Man is this really fond love letter to a healing New York. And it's one that's in direct conversation with Dog Day Afternoon. You know, it's about a bank heist and a crowd that gathers outside. Uh, But in this case, it's one... That's you know set downtown uh, on I think Twenty Exchange Place uh, by Wall Street is where it's filmed, uh, and it is uh, about New York in all of its kind of messy, diverse, and unified glory. You know, I think it, you've got Denzel Washington as Detective Keith Frazier, Chiwetel Ejiofor as his second in command, and they are going up against Clive Owen, who, with his very organized team, have come up with this plan to rob the bank that does not end in quite the same way as Dog Day Afternoon does. Uh, But I think that the great touches about this movie are just the way it kind of pauses to just enjoy the characters and the, the kind of the people in the bank and outside of the bank because of the way the crime, uh, the heist works. There are a lot of interviews that they have to do with people who are inside the bank and they're just funny and uh, they often break through to kind of have these moments of connection. Uh, you know, Waris Aluwalia complains about the harassment he gets as a Sikh man in a turban. Uh, as an elderly woman who they kind of are very, like, they treat very gently. Where's my turban? I'm not talking to anybody without a turban. It's part of my religion to cover my head in respect to God. I'm a Sikh. Okay, we'll find your turban. Not an Arab, by the way, like your cops no, called me outside. I, I don't think you heard that. I mean, there was a lot going on. You were probably disoriented. I didn't hear that. I heard what I heard. I'll give you all the information you want. I don't need this. I need my turban. It's part of my we'll religion. We'll get you your turban. We'll fight it for you. No, no, no. Not get me. I want my turban now. You just got to start thinking about the people inside the bank now. It's a dangerous situation. You got to start telling us about what's going on inside the bank. We can talk about this later. We'll get an office. Come down. You can write a formal complaint. But for now, we got to deal with this situation. First you beat me, and now you want my help. You need to start thinking about your co-workers. Uh, just the extreme fondness this film has for New York and New Yorkers is uh, something that I find really moving. You know, it is, it is a heist movie. It is a crime, it's a, a crime movie, but it's one that is about community and that is uh, about community kind of slowly coming together. You've got Jodie Foster as this power broker, and her whole storyline uh, with Christopher Plummer is basically about having the sense of like bad people will eventually get punished no matter how powerful they are, which I think is a weirdly lovely comforting thing. Yeah. thing at that point. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot about this movie that is comforting and that is really warm. Uh, and, you know, especially for Spike Lee, who is somewhat, it, it doesn't go gently on people, but I think it is one of his kind of uh, sunniest movies in a weird way because of, of that sense of uh, of coming together. So that's Inside Man, and it is streaming on Amazon. That's a very good pick. My last pick is also a crime film. Wouldn't shock me if my pick was a inspiration on your pick by Spike Lee, just knowing its approach and uh, just feeling like the way I'm going to describe it kind of sounds a little similar to the way you described Inside Man. It's called The Naked City from 1948, directed by Jules Dassin. And that's available on Hulu Plus. It's a Criterion film. The movie was produced and narrated by a gentleman by the name of Mark Hellinger, who was a former newspaper columnist. So the movie kind of feels almost like an adaptation of a whole bunch of newspaper columns. There's a main story, which is a crime story about a murder mystery and the cops trying to solve it. But there's all these brief vignettes where we meet all the people in the naked city and it the title which eventually went on to inspire a tv show the the famous line which is how the movie is remembered is there's eight million stories in the naked city and this was one of them 
And uh, that's what it is. I mean, tellingly, there aren't really any movie stars in this film. This one doesn't have a, a Denzel Washington. The main character is a, is a cop played by Barry Fitzgerald, who is this middle-aged, short, uh, Irish actor. The, the star of the movie is New York City. I mean, that's how I think it was designed, and I think that's what comes across. Uh, Hellinger explains in the opening narration that the movie was not made in a studio. It was made on location in New York City, and it really shows. The cops work at the 10th Precinct in Chelsea, and if you go on Google right now and you type in 10th Precinct and you go to Google Maps and you look at Street View, it looks identical to the 10th Precinct that was in the movie in 1948. It looks exactly the same. They go past movie theaters with movies on the marquee. You can look up the movies. They played in New York in 1947, you know, when they shot the movie. Uh, the big chase at the climax takes place through the Lower East Side, where I used to live. It took place a block from my house, and you can watch, you can recognize locations. Uh, they go into the Essex Street Market, which is still there. I showed my wife. She knew exactly where it was without me telling her. I said, what's that? She said, it's the Essex Street Market. The doors haven't changed in, in uh, more than 60 years. It's 1 o'clock in the morning again, and this is the city, and these are the lights that a child born to the name of Batori hungered for. Her passion has been played out now. Her name, her face, her history were worth five cents a day for six days. Tomorrow, a new case will hit the headlines. Yet some will remember Jean Dexter. She won't be entirely forgotten. Not entirely. Not altogether. million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. It's not a great movie. I don't even know if it's a great Jules Dassin movie who made some wonderful films like Brute Force, Thieves Highway, uh, Rafifi, but it's a great New York movie because the city is there in all its glory, and you really get a feel for the city in 1948. You know, the way the cops worked, the way people commuted on the subways. You go in the subways, there, you know, you go on the elevated trains, you go to a bunch of different boroughs, you go from the Lower East Side all the way to Park Avenue, where one of the suspects lives. There's kids, you watch kids swimming in the East River. You really get a sense that you are traveling through this place that really existed and getting these little glimpses into different lives. And it has a, almost a documentary feel to it. Uh, so that's what I really like about it. And uh, it is. It's the naked city. You really feel like you're getting this unvarnished view of New York City at the time, which I, I really like. I've seen it a few times. It's, it's, a, it's a, another one that I really like. The Naked City, available on Hulu+. Plus. I'm in Williamsburg, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Represent. Represent what? What? I'm representing Williamsburg, bro. You gotta respect where I come from, cause I respect where you come from. Come on. You know where we come from, bro? We come from the hood. You are in the demon's house. I had a great day. I went to the shopping mall. I feel so good about hanging out with my best friends today. Your listener's choice pick this week was The Comedy, which is available on VOD from Tribeca Films, also on iTunes and Amazon and Vudu. And it's actually opening in theaters soon. It's opening in Los Angeles on November 9th and in New York on November 16th and kind of slowly making its way into different cities from there. Now, the comedy is directed by Rick Alverson, who's directed two indie films before this, The Builder and New Jerusalem, uh, neither of which I'm familiar with. Are you, Matt? Uh, This is the first film of his I've seen. Yeah. For most, seeing the comedy based on any name recognition, it'll be because of its star, Tim Heidecker, of Tim and Eric. Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job, and so on. Uh, Heidecker's frequent collaborator, Eric Wareheim, also appears in the film, as does comedian Greg Turkington and James Murphy of the former band LCD Sound System. The film is a character study of Swanson, played by Heidecker, who is a 35-year-old man who lives on a yacht and spends his days getting trashed with his friends, 
messing with people uh, and taking up odd jobs like dishwashing that he doesn't need for financial reasons, as he's due to inherit money from his wealthy father, who's comatose and under a nurse's care. Now, Swanson and his friends, who include Wareheim and Murphy, spend a lot of time drinking and indulging in these kind of half-jokey bull sessions in which they never seem to say anything they actually mean or anything that's not sarcastic, which is how Swanson leads his life overall uh, when he's not riffing on how people gave up feudalism too soon or about hobos or about whether his sister-in-law gets conjugal visits with his brother, who's in a mental institution. He's more aggressively messing with people. He does things like join gardeners working in a lawn and pretends to be their boss. He uh, goes to a bar in which all the patrons are African-American and tosses these half-inflammatory conversational gambits their way. He offers a cab driver hundreds of dollars for a chance to drive his cab for 20 minutes. This is a film about aggressively not caring, about irony as this lifestyle choice and as a shield against ever showing how you really feel. And there are really only a few moments in which we see Swanson do something unguarded, and they're not usually meant for external consumption. So, Matt, my question for you is, this is a portrait of uh, a generally unpleasant person. Did you find the movie an unpleasant experience in terms of watching it? I didn't find the movie unpleasant. I didn't find it all that compelling, though, either. I felt like, you know, it was tempting to be this sort of deep portrait of shallowness, in a sense. And I don't know if it really got there. And I got the sense about a half hour in, like, I, I, I felt, whether I was wrong or right, that I, I knew everything that I was going to learn from this movie, that I got it already. And I was waiting for something for that next hour to change my mind. And it really didn't. I, I kind of felt like a half hour in, I, I got a sense of who this guy was and the point that the movie was making about all those things you were talking about. And then I didn't really feel it, like it doesn't have another gear. You know, it never kicks into another gear. Nothing really happens to this guy. This movie didn't quite have enough in there to really justify its length. It felt like a great short film that had been pulled like taffy to 90 minutes. Let's, let's talk about, like, very briefly, The Landlord, that movie I talked about earlier. Here's the comparison. The characters are almost identical in terms of, like, their upbringings and sort of their attitudes. Uh, Swanson is much more snarky and cynical, but they have this sort of, like, removed kind of above-it-all sort of attitude. Well, okay, now in The Landlord, that character, something happens to him that we actually get to see him at least, if not change his values, then confront his values and think about them. And I just felt like in the comedy, I was just seeing someone's values kind of expressed over and over again with very little variation. And so I guess that's what I was kind of hoping for. Maybe it's the fact that this movie was watched by me four days after this incredible apocalyptic hurricane. And it, it felt like I was going, what would this guy have done in the middle of Hurricane Sandy? And wouldn't that have been a little more interesting than what happens to him in this movie, which ostensibly is nothing? Yeah, I think I liked it a little more than you, but I would agree that the fact that this is not, this is a static portrait. Like, he does not give any sense of having grown or changed at the end. Like, that it is just a portrait of someone at a not necessarily pivotal moment in their life. I think that that is uh is disappointing because it does seem like the film just goes on and then ends and there is a little bit of a sense of repetition in that every sequence as much as i think a lot of them are kind of like very well done in terms of making you uncomfortable uh that they are repetitious in that they don't achieve something new right as they go along i'm not sure that you are necessarily supposed to be invested in him as a person like he is like you understand him but that i don't think that in the end you care if he lives or dies and mm -hmm. i don't think that's a question of likability i think mm -hmm. it's just a question of he's a jerk you know right. like this is a portrait of someone who's a jerk and that you want you appreciate why right. that is and this kind of aimless life he's chosen for himself but well, one thing I wasn't sure about is, are we supposed to despise him or are we supposed to feel empathy for him? The movie seems to want us to do both. I think it's trying to walk a line where we want to sort of, uh, you know, indict him for his behavior, but also, in a sense, feel sort of like 
a kind of wistful sadness for this generation. You know, there's this sense of almost like this generation that's aloof and wandering and that they're, you know, it's like a tragedy almost. Well, see, I don't know. I One of the things I thought was actually very interesting about the movie is that I felt like it was, in terms of portraits of like hipsterdom, for lack of a better term, uh, and that it is very much what this is about, like just in terms of it's set in Williamsburg, which is, you know, one of the capitals of of this kind of culture, mm-hmm. if, um, at least was. It, a lot of the things they do are exactly from like the PBR drinking or the Colt 45 drinking to like the playing their clothes softball, to their clothes to the Ray-Bans and like, the you Ray-Bans. know, the, like everything about it. Yeah. yeah. That it is a little bit of a, I think, a kind of older, like a snapshot of hipsterdom as it was. Right. You know, I mean, beyond just the fact that like, if you go to live in Williamsburg these days, you have to have money because it's not the place you would go when you're a 24 year old, you know, moving to New York anymore. That yeah. you'd move a lot further out. But I think that also just the cynicism and the kind of irony is a little bit older too. Right. Well, the fact that the characters are older, you know, the guy, they're all, they all look to be guys in their mid to late 30s or maybe even a little older than that, which I think also is, is, is where the sort of sense of tragicness is maybe supposed to come from is the fact that these losers are now getting to the point where it's not cool to do this anymore. And it's like, what are they going to do with their lives in 10 years when they're 40 to 50 and they have no jobs and no skills and they're just sitting around watching slideshows and making ridiculous jokes? You lived in Williamsburg at one point in your life, did you not? Uh, yes, and yeah. I live in Greenpoint now, which right. is not kind f- of glommed into Williamsburg right, most of far. the time. Yeah. So that's one question I had for you, because I, I mean, obviously I've spent time in Williamsburg, but I never lived there. Did you feel it was an accurate portrait? I think you touched on the, the you know, like the, the outfits, the dress, the yeah. look is accurate. Did you feel like these characters, You like, would you have walked into a bar and met these guys? Have you met guys like Swanson in bars? I've definitely met aging hipsters before. Okay. Uh, and I think that it, it is a type. I think that the kind of all-consuming like kind of irony the way the irony I mean this is a movie about irony as this almost crippling right. force you know that like this is a character who might not even know how to sincerely express himself even if he weren't always goading people and kind of testing them I, I you know he does he's clearly not comfortable mm-hmm. saying what how he really feels right. at all you know uh, I, I'm not sure that I can really place that it's obviously an extreme version anyway but I'm not sure that I can necessarily relate especially mm-hmm. since now I think that hipster culture has kind of gone in the other direction of like an almost overwhelming twee sincerity, mm, you know, that, uh, that, which is just something I thought was interesting about this is that this does seem a snapshot of an earlier PBR drinking, right. trucker hat wearing moments. <laughs> well, that Berkeley would make culture. sense with these guys who are a little bit older yeah. though, you know, like they've never grown out of it. I will say just at times I felt like I wasn't sure that this was the most faithful representation, specifically in the way that they, the characters talk. When these guys are sitting around having these outrageous, confrontational, kind of very sarcastic, ironic conversations, the only times I've ever heard people actually talk like this for prolonged periods of times were in improv classes. Mm-hmm. You know, they have these, like, there was a sense I got sometimes that they were, there was no script, and they were just like, well, what can we say that's outrageous and go on some sort of, like, comedy run? I'm not saying these guys are bad at it. I'm just saying, like, that that's the atmosphere that I felt in some of these scenes. Like, like people trying to out-improv each other, mm-hmm. trying to uh, do that, and not necessarily have a genuine conversation. Now, maybe the point of the movie is that these men are incapable of having genuine conversations i could accept that argument i don't know if that argument makes me like the movie any more than i did right and i it's interesting that also especially when well not even only when swanson is by himself but like the kind of terror they kind of he inflicts on other people are usually with people like not other fellow hipsters they are with the gardener with the nurse you know with the the taxi driver whose radio doesn't work Mm -hmm. and with people who are basically in service positions who are not in a place to fight back, which I think is, you know, probably one of the most dislikable things that he does, which Mm -hmm. is that like he constantly messes, like kind of jokes with people who are not in a position to joke who actually, you know, and I, I think that that aspect, I don't think is necessarily uh, something that I would ascribe to Williamsburg culture in particular, but Mm -hmm. I think that, maybe it's more telling in a way like i i felt like this was i mean it's certainly a portrait of self-loathing you know there's one part in the film where he's kind of joking and talking to a girl at a party and he says um he thinks that there are some people whose lives are better because they deserve it they are genetically chosen to be at the top of the food chain 
and he's kind of he's he's being sort of ironic but he's also like he is been chosen to be at the top of a certain food chain, right? right He's been born right. into this comfortable life. And, you know, he does so many things that are deliberately meant to be grotesque from even just like the way Heidegger uses his body, you know, like yes. you have, a, this is a movie filled with scenes of like middle-aged bellies, you know, yes. of like men in cutoffs, yes. middle-aged men in cutoffs, basically. No like shirt. Almost, yeah. And kind of like with pot bellies deliberately like, uh, like sitting in the most like bending over angle. Yeah. Bending over and exposing their bellies. Yeah. You know, like yeah. this is a, like, it's a film so filled with self-loathing. In a lot of ways, I felt like so many of these scenes were about him looking to get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Like that all this character wanted was for someone to just deck him. To call him on his, yeah. his nonsense. Maybe. But, yeah. But while of course, always picking on people who are not in a position to really right. do that. And not to spoil it, but it never really happens. Right. So it's not like that is a, you know, it's not like there's a place for that to go within the movie because it's this constant search for him to be called on his nonsense and it, it never happens. Yeah. He goes around. I thought it was kind of interesting how he does go around trying on jobs yeah. because he doesn't and, have and to like work. work class jobs you know right. like very Lawn deliberately work, menial bartending yeah. dishwashing you know and and he he's almost like working in a sarcasm he like he turns work into sarcasm right. like he goes to a he gets a dishwashing job and then he stands there and brushes his teeth at the dishwashing job waiting for someone to like look at him i thought that was kind of interesting i also thought it was sort of interesting to look at the movie almost as like tim and eric's like stardust memories because i felt in a sense like this was their audience right i mean (laughs) these sorts of guys are the people that really dig their their tv show their movies you know like that Mm. sort of detached ironic hipster is sort of exactly who they're catering their tv show to i mean there's not too many people beyond that that like their shows that's an interesting point i was going to ask you actually how you thought this fit in with the brand of anti-comedy that they really practice because it does seem like it's related but almost a condemnation of it you know, in well, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it, it really, I mean, certainly, like you said, I felt self-loathing was a word I had in my notes. It definitely feels like they are sort of looking at themselves or at their audience, potentially, and sort of pointing a finger and saying, why are you or maybe why are we this way? Uh, but it, it's sort of biting the hand that feeds them because this is the who else is going to watch Tim and Eric's show? I mean, right. Not too many people beyond. I mean, like, I have to imagine the Williamsburg kind of is like a huge concentration of the people that have actually watched their show. I mean, right. I think they're talented guys, but if we went to a state in the middle of the country and just walked into a mall and asked 50 people who are Tim and Eric, I, I don't know how many people would know. If we walked into the, a, you know, a bar in Williamsburg, yeah. they would all know. They would all know, yeah. So it's interesting that the movie that I thought of was Stardust Memories, that I felt like this was sort of them kind of really taking a very hard look at themselves and at their audience and going, why is my audience, why does my audience like my work? And uh, is that a good thing? Is, am, I, am I appealing to an audience that I don't like, potentially? Which is always interesting. And like I said, I thought there was interesting things in the movie. I just thought they were all of sort of, of, a, of a piece. You know, there was yeah. just all one level there. And I never felt like we got anywhere else. We never went below it. And I just... At a certain point, I was just like, well, what's, what else is there? What else is there? To, I, okay, I understand what you're doing. Right. What's next? And right. there, wasn't, there was nothing next. What did you think of uh, his character's relationship with the waitress he kind of picks up at his dishwashing job? I mean, there's a scene in it. I'm not, I don't think this is a spoiler. He, she has a seizure. Mm-hmm. And he just watches her. Right. And has like no particular alarm on his face or surprise or concern. What did you make of that? Uh, I just thought it was another case of his complete detachment from everything and everyone around him. I mean, isn't that what he is? He is he he's above everything, you know. Mm-hmm. He's he's looking down on everyone and everything. And you talked earlier about that quote that he says about how some people are genetically, you know, predisposed to be superior or whatever. And to me that was what was going through his mind. It's like, "Oh, she's, you know, she's another person who's uh damaged who is not up to the level of swanson that's interesting see when i was watching it what i thought was maybe that he also because this is a girl who kind of talks the same way he does you Mm. know who is just as kind of like she seems to enjoy that same yeah yeah. that he was so unsure if she was just messing with him that he did not react Ah, because he would he didn't want to like prove that he cared that cared or just had any genuine reaction so he instead chose to kind of like just look there in case she was joking she'd be like i got you Mm -hmm. i'll ask you this last question which do you prefer because we did this is the second tim heidecker 
film right. that we have covered on this podcast in only 20 episodes. Do you prefer Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie or the comedy? The comedy by far. I see. I, I think I would I would rather watch Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie again. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Either way, I feel like maybe we, we have uh, a lot to say about their films, but I don't know that I would really uh, consider myself a great devotee of either of them. Agreed. The comedy is currently available on VOD. It's also available for rent on iTunes and Vudu and Amazon and will be in theaters shortly. All right, we close out the show with Behind the Eight Ball, our countdown of three new releases, two expiring titles, and one random film from our queue. Allison's going to go first. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, well, let's start things off with three new releases. All right, the first one is 24-7, 1997 film that is new on Hulu. This is one of the early films from Shane Meadows, who is a very promising uh, indie English director who did Dead Man's Shoes, This is England, and Summerstown. It's actually his second feature. It stars Bob Hoskins as a man from a working class town who opens up a boxing center to train and also gives something to do uh, for the young men who otherwise end up in trouble. So that is 24-7. It is on Hulu. Next is Out of Sight, Steven Soderbergh's 1998 film, which is new to Netflix, uh, stars George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. And it's one of the films that I think makes me th- makes me think that maybe I like Soderbergh's uh, commercial efforts more than I like his more heady experiments. I just think he's so good at directing uh at directing stars. I think this is one of those films that makes you really appreciate the kind of amazing star qualities and charisma of Clooney and Lopez, who are just great together. That is Out of Sight. It is new to Netflix. And finally, also new to Netflix, Barton Fink, 1991 film from the Coen brothers, starring John Turturro as a promising New York City playwright who, like so many promising people from, uh, you know, kind of different fields, ended up in Hollywood, not doing the type of work he really wanted to do. And I, you know, this is one of my favorite Coen Brothers films, and it's such a great, surreal portrait of a Hollywood, Hollywood as hell, basically. Uh, and, and, and especially good John Goodman as Charlie, who lives in the same hotel as Tuturo's character. So that is Barton Fink, and it is on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. Right, expiring on November 9th from Netflix is Lovely Still. This is a later in life romance about how uh, a man named Robert, played by Martin Landau, falls in love with Mary, uh, who is played by Ellen Burstyn, who is the mother of his neighbor. Uh, this is a love story with a major twist that I won't give away, but it is not quite as straightforward as I've just made it sound. So it's got a kind of interesting take. Is uh, one of them dead all along? They're both dead all along. Everyone is dead. I know. All right. And then expiring on November 15th is Everyone Else, which is the uh, great film from Maren Ada, the German director, a 2009 film about a couple who are on vacation who are confronting issues about their future. Uh, They're in Sardinia. They get along really well when they're just together, but have a lot of trouble that comes to light when they're in the company of others. And, uh, you know, uh, Ada is one of the filmmakers that's from this movement that's supposed to be a European successor to Mumblecore in certain ways. That sounds scary. This is a great film uh, with two very good performances and a very nuanced portrait of kind of the, the problems a couple can have. So that's everyone else. It is expiring from Netflix, November 15th. Okay, and one random film from your queue. All right. So you gave me number 101, and that is W.E., the 2001 film directed by Madonna. Nice. Yes, starring Abby Cornish as a Ooh. New York woman in 1998, obsessed with American socialite Wallace Simpson. I smell a listener's choice movie uh-huh. coming up real Played soon. by Andrea Riseborough, mm-hmm. and it intertwines the story of how uh, King Edward VIII, played by James Darcy, fell in love with her, abdicated the throne for her, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I've heard this film is uh, outrageously awful in some ways, which is part of the reason that I added this as well as, you know, how can I resist seeing what comes from the mind of Madonna? Mm. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's okay. go. Let's do it. Three new films. Okay. First up on Netflix is a film entitled The American Scream. It is a documentary about home haunters. It's from the director of the documentary Best Worst Movie, which was about Troll 2. I just watched it myself uh, earlier this week. It's, it's a really, really lovely little documentary about people who are just – they're just passionate about Halloween and they, they, this is their expression. This is their art is 
changing their house into a haunted house for Halloween. It's a it's a really fun documentary. Even though it's not Halloween anymore, I think you'll still enjoy it. Uh, also on Netflix is Thieves Like Us, the 1974 Robert Altman film with Keith Carradine and Shelley Duvall as thieves in the Great Depression. This is actually an Altman I've never seen. So this is one I'm really looking forward to catching up with myself. And last, I've got Red Scorpion, also on Netflix. This is a 1989 Dolph Lundgren action movie, notable in one important way. It was produced by Jack Abramoff, (laughs) the lobbyist who ended up going to jail for fraud and tax evasion. He was a huge public figure a few years ago for that scandal. The film is a very thinly veiled – I've watched it. It's a very thinly veiled pro-Republican, anti-communist tract in the form of a Dolph Lundgren movie. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating stuff. So that's Red Scorpion on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. Both of these films are expiring on November 15th from Netflix. First up, I have Assault on Precinct 13, the John Carpenter thriller set in a police station under siege. Kind of a very loose update of Rio Bravo, the Western. Tense, gritty, very exciting. Another film in which the remake never happened, Allison. <laughs> what remake? Exactly. Uh, also expiring on, on November 15th, Sherlock Jr., the Buster Keaton classic where he plays a movie theater projectionist who falls asleep and dreams himself into the movies. One of my all-time favorite silent movies, one of my favorite Buster Keaton movies. If you've never seen it, it is just delightful. And if you've ever heard the stories about Buster Keaton, this is the one where doing a stunt, he actually broke his neck. And didn't even realize it and just kept on filming. <laughs> he said years later he was checked out and a, and a doctor found the fracture and saw that it had healed on its own. He's like, oh, yeah, I think I had a couple of headaches a few days after that. So that's Sherlock Jr. Uh, from Psycho Buster Keaton uh, expiring on November 15th. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 80, which is not a movie this week. That's a TV show. It is Saturday Night Live, the 1970s. I just have all the Saturday Night Lives on there. Sometimes when I'm scrounging for something non-movie related to watch, I put on Saturday Night Live because I, I really I love I love the show. I'm fascinated by the show and the whole history of it and all the different casts and the up and downs of the show. I'll give you one episode recommendation from the 70s. Season 4, episode 20, Buck Henry hosts. There's a Samurai Bakery sketch and a very good Olympia Cafe sketch. You ever, you know the Olympia Cafe? Of course. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger? Of course. Yeah, so that's, uh, <laughs> so that's uh, Saturday Night Live, colon, the 1970s. Okay, here are your picks for our next episode's listener's choice, in which you get to vote on what we will review next. What's our first pick? Our first pick is, I know, Allison's favorite movie of 2012 so far. <laughs> it is entitled Lockout, or more accurately entitled Space Jail, the 2012 film directed by James Mather and Stephen St. Leger. It, it stars Guy Pierce as, do you remember his character name? Uh, Marion Snow. That's right. And he is sent to a place in space called Space Jail <laughs> where there are people in jail and it's in, in space. space. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful film of love and loss and redemption. And it's now been proven very scientifically accurate. That's right. Uh, by the recent Red Bull space jump. That's right. So um, Allison and I enjoyed this film uh, when it came out. Apparently, we want to see it again because we're making it an option for listener's choice. So that is Lockout. It will be available on Netflix, even if we don't review it. It will be available on Netflix starting on November 7th. Okay, our next pick is Bottle Rocket. It is available on Crackle. This is Wes Anderson's first film based on a short film he made in 1992, co-written by and starring Owen Wilson. Uh, it's, uh, he plays a character named Dignan, who uh, is best friends with someone named Anthony, played by Luke Wilson. Uh, the two try to become criminals, basically. They're not particularly good at it, but they have very Wes Anderson-esque adventures. And we thought it would be interesting to look at this. You've never seen this film, now. I have never seen Bottle Rocket. So, you know... I'm not the biggest Wes Anderson film fan out there, Allison. So this is my chance to antagonize the film-spotting SVU listening public and ensure they never listen again. So if you want some the comedy-style goading from that singer (laughs) about the career of, uh, of... you know, all of the people involved in making this, then, right. then this is your pick. Conversely, if you're such a huge Wes Anderson fan that you don't want to hear me destroy the man, then don't vote for it. All right. Why don't you tell us our <laughs> next pick? <laughs> our last pick this week is Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, which is recently added to Hulu Plus in the Criterion Collection section. 
And of all the kind of great international film directors, I would say the one of mine who I have seen the least of, as in I have seen nothing he ever did, and so it's a huge blind spot for me, is Rainer Werner Fassbender. I've seen nothing by Fassbender. So for me, that's the big reason to see this one. I don't really know too much about it. I know it's considered one of his greatest films, and it was just added to uh, Hulu. So I thought that would be a good reason to see it. Allison, have you seen this movie? I have not seen it. Have you I'm seen s- any Fassbender movies? I don't know that I have. So he's also a huge blind spot for yeah, me. Yeah, so. that's an embarrassing one. Yeah. Like, you know, every you name a, you name a great director. I'm not going to pretend like I've seen all of his movies, but he, he or she, I've seen at least one, probably. Yeah. So, and I have seen no Fassbender movies. So you could save us from our ignorance by picking this one. That's right. All right. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can also enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 12th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next week's episode, which will be on Monday, November 19th, give or take a day. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com, and we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter at Allison Wilmore or at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show, of course, at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice, and we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>